What's up, nerds? It's your girl, Editing Grace, coming to you from Pride Month 2021. Just a quick update about one of the fabulous guests in today's episode. Hannah, who also goes by Han, which is adorable, now uses she, they pronouns, which is awesome. I love seeing growth. It makes me so happy. So Han, thank you so much for sharing the update with me. And, uh, Thanks for letting me share it with the world. All right, editing grace is all done. Let's get back to the show. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Boss Science, a podcast where I interview wicked smart scientists to learn all about the latest and greatest research going on in Boston. I'm your host, the fabulous Grace Ingalls, and I'm very excited to be able to bring you the second official soundbite episode of Boss Science. These mini-episodes each feature a unique and exciting topic in the world of science. But I'm gonna give you a heads up, today's episode isn't all that mini. I'll admit, I got a little ambitious when it came to this soundbite, and I talk a little bit longer than I originally anticipated. But if you stick around and give it a listen, I think you'll agree with me that every second of the episode is worth it. In today's soundbite, I'll be celebrating Pride Month by telling you guys about some of the amazing LGBTQ scientists that are studying or working on absolutely incredible research all across the fields of STEM. But wait, Grace, I thought Pride Month was in June. Why are you posting about Pride now? Ah, well, great question. Turns out that, um, life is stressful, and podcasting is hard, and I have the time management skills of a potato. But that's alright. Better late than never, I always say. And it doesn't have to be Pride Month to celebrate the wonderful world of the queer community. In fact, it's just as important to remember to celebrate and represent the LGBTQ community all the time, because honestly, one month is not nearly enough time to marvel over these awesome people. So who do I mean when I say LGBTQ+. This is a term that encompasses a whole range of identities, including lesbian, gay, transgender, and queer. The plus symbol acknowledges those groups in the community that aren't included in the acronym, such as those who identify as non-binary, pansexual, asexual, intersex, and two-spirit. The term queer is often used as an umbrella term for those who are part of the LGBTQ community, and to try to be inclusive in my thoughts going forward, I'll use this term too. One of the reasons I'm so excited for this episode is because not only do I think it's important to highlight the queer community, but I think it's even more important to talk about the queer community and its involvement in the field of STEM. That is, the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Because as much as I love being part of the STEM community, I'm sad to say it's not the most accepting and open community for those who identify as LGBTQ+. And this isn't just a feeling or personal opinion, alright? Let me hit you with the facts. An article published in the Journal of Homosexuality in 2015 showed that more than 40% of LGBTQ scientists remain closeted at work. Another survey conducted in 2014 found that nearly 70% of STEM faculty members who are out to their coworkers felt uncomfortable in their university department, and those who were out were seven times more likely to experience discrimination from their coworkers. A survey from the American Physical Society 
detailed that nearly half of transgender or gender nonconforming physicists experienced workplace harassment. It's even been proven that LGBTQ students are 14% less likely to stay in their STEM program compared to their heterosexual peers. I'm heartbroken to read those statistics, but from my experience in STEM, I can see how all those numbers are true. For many places, the culture of STEM and academia tends to support a straight environment. For example, I have been a student and a researcher in many different fields of STEM for more than nine years. And while I can name dozens of artists and writers and musicians I know who are LGBTQ+, I can count on one hand the number of queer scientists I know. What the hell? Why am I just realizing this now? It's shocking to me how little visibility LGBTQ scientists get, and it makes me wonder why this is. Now, I'm sure there are some of you listening and saying, why does that matter? As long as someone can be part of the STEM community and also be part of the LGBTQ community, why is it important that the two communities be combined? Well, when you think about it, your career is a huge part of your life. You're going to be waking up and going to work for eight hours a day, five days a week, 50 weeks a year, for at least 35 to 40 years. If you're going to be spending such a huge part of your life working within a certain community, you want to make sure that you work with a community you feel comfortable in. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to choose a career where you don't see anyone else who is like you working in it? Like, have you ever walked into a party and everyone who's there has the opposite political opinions as you, and the only thing that they're talking about is Trump 2020? Did you have a good time at the party? Probably not. Imagine how much worse it would be to have that party be your career, and everyone there talking about their love lives. How many times have you heard a non-queer person at work say something like, My boyfriend and I just decided to move in together. Or maybe, I got a date tonight with this hot girl on Tinder, check it out. Or even, if my husband leaves his socks next to the couch one more time, I'm getting a divorce. If you're not out to your coworkers about who you are, you can't speak up, you can't contribute. Or if you do, you have to be careful about what pronouns you use or what stories you tell. It must be mentally exhausting working like that. And it can feel so isolating thinking that you're going through this alone. Having visibility of the LGBTQ community in STEM careers ensures that those queer scientists know they're not alone, that there are other people like them on this path of life. And that's exactly how it should be. I love being able to call myself a scientist, and I love connecting with other people in the scientific community. I'm very proud to say, my name's Grace, and I'm a scientist. Although it may not be the case right now, I hope that we can move the culture of STEM to such a place that someone can say, I am gay, with as much pride as they say, I am a scientist. Because being a scientist is a huge part of who you are, but who you love and how you identify is just as important a part of you, and both deserve the same excitement and pride. But the world isn't going to change just by hoping, it changes by doing. One of the first steps towards this change is increasing the visibility of the LGBTQ community in STEM. There are so many amazing queer scientists in our world, and especially in Boston. Today, I want to highlight seven absolutely wicked smart scientists who are all proud members of the LGBTQ community. First up, let's meet Evans Ralstead. Evans is gay, and he is also a chemical biology PhD student at MIT. Before Evans took the icy cold plunge into the deep dark waters of graduate school, good luck, man. He worked in the fantastic field of tissue engineering, where he researched regenerative medicine to enhance the repair of bone trauma 
and to develop spinal fusion therapies. But he's moved from one badass research topic to another for his PhD. Today, Evans' research is all about studying protein chemistry and structure-function relationships. His hope is to develop a kind of Trojan horse protein, which could be used as a potential treatment for HIV-infected people. So what does a Trojan horse protein do? Does it tell our body to build a giant wooden horse and then fill it with Greek soldiers and then use it to sack the city of Troy? Or is that too literal an interpretation? Turns out that the Trojan horse that Evans is talking about is a little bit more subtle than the classic Greek myth it's named after. Evans' project works on a variant of the enzyme ribonuclease, nicknamed RNase, which is one of the proteins responsible for cleaving RNA. Our cells use RNA, which is an exact copy of specific segments of our DNA, to interact with the rest of the cell and carry out the DNA's instruction. Basically, RNA is what is actually responsible for telling our bodies what the hell it's supposed to be doing at any given time. Now, we have lots of different RNAs proteins in our body, and they're all super important for processing and developing all the RNA molecules we use to survive. But of course, too much of anything is never a good thing. So our body needs something to regulate the activity of these RNAs proteins, making sure they aren't being overactive and cutting RNA when it shouldn't, or being underactive and sleeping in on the job when they're needed. And as it just so happens, we already have a system set up to do this. They're called ribonuclease inhibitors, or RIs for short. These massive RI proteins are responsible for controlling the activity of our RNAs proteins. They do this by sheer brute force. Just imagine, you're a hardworking little RNAs protein having a grand old time chopping up sections of RNA, when this enormous RI protein runs over to you, jumps on top of you, and koala bear hugs you so hard that you just fall over and can't move. When an RI protein binds to the surface of RNAs, this connection is so tight that the RNAs can't break free, and it can't attach to RNA with the RI on top of it. So the RNAs protein now has no choice but to roll around the cell with the RI attached to it until the RI protein decides, all right, enough fooling around, get back to work and detaches itself, leaving the RNAs finally free to run away and continue chopping up RNA in peace. Now, why is it that Evans cares so much about these RNAs molecules? Well, aside from cutting up RNA to send out into the cell and cleaning up RNA that's no longer needed, RNAs proteins are one of the first lines of defense against RNA viruses. So let's take the flu, for example, a common RNA type virus. The flu virus spreads by injecting its RNA into a cell in your body, once inside, this viral RNA will hijack the cell's internal processes and instructs the cells to stop whatever it's doing and make baby RNA viruses. Then, once all these RNA viral copies are made, they will burst open the cell like some disgusting spider egg sac video you've seen on Instagram, and then head off to get ready to start the process all over again. Yikes. Not cute at all. But luckily, we have a natural defense against viral invaders, and many of our cells' RNases are able to attack viral RNA and stop the reproduction of viruses in the infected cell. Awesome, right? Unfortunately, though, our body isn't equipped to fight off all types of viral infections. But that's where Evans comes in. His idea for the Trojan horse RNase protein is that this novel enzyme would be capable of destroying any cell it entered. But... The RNase is only activated when it's inside infected tissue. This sneaky RNase works due to its ability to evade the RI proteins that are active in viral infected cells. 
for serious types of viral infections, our body's natural RNA's proteins aren't able to destroy the viral RNA of an infected cell. Because the cell's RNA proteins will stop it before it even has a chance. Evans' hypothesized protein is actually capable of evading these RI proteins and succeed in their mission of destroying all the RNA in the cell, leading to the inevitable death of the infected cell. If successful, this Trojan horse protein would be an amazing new strategy for targeting viral infections. And although Evans started this work with the focus of combating HIV infections, recently the project has been pivoted to try and treat COVID-19. Go, Trojan horse protein, go! Kill that COVID! I am so over being stuck inside all day. When it comes to his research, Evans chose this topic because he's driven by a desire to help people, and the topics he's most passionate about are those that he has a personal connection to. He says, I believe the greatest duty of science is to improve the lives of others, which drives my work every day. Evans, thank you so much for your passion to help people. You're making the world a better place, not just with your research, but with your very presence. When it comes to making the world a better place, some people take that literally, like the brilliant Catherine Brainard. Catherine is lesbian, and she's a horticulturist. The field of horticulture is beautiful, as it combines two of my favorite things in the world, plants and science. A horticulturist is someone who uses scientific knowledge to cultivate and propagate plants. They can do awesome things like conduct pest and disease investigations, consult with farmers on the best planting, growing, and harvesting strategies, and even assist in regenerating degraded land. Our horticulturist, Catherine, has done some mind-blowingly cool things. She's gone trekking through the wilderness of Vermont to conduct surveys all along the boundary of the wilderness, checking for invasive plant species, water quality, and trail issues. She's interned in Hawaii on a project to take endangered native plant species and outplant them all along the cliff sides of the area. Her hope was that this planting strategy would help to stop predators from getting to the native plants, and the species would hopefully have a chance to grow and repopulate once more. Catherine has even led backpacking trips all across the mountains of Vermont, New York, and New Hampshire, teaching her fellow hikers about the wonders of the natural world around them, and helping people get interested in exploring these wild places. Helping people learn and experience nature is one of the great joys of Catherine's work. Whether it's seeing the excitement of a person watching a hummingbird moth pollinate a tubular flower for the first time, or when they discover the sound of a barred owl hooting in the forest. Today, Catherine works as a horticulture manager at a public park in Boston, where she spends her time coordinating volunteers, managing interns and staff, and maintaining a section of the park entirely compromised by native plants. She says, My hope is to continue to inspire the next generation of horticulturists and botanists by empowering them in their jobs, and I hope to see increased diversity of people working in this field. As if you need another reason to love this girl, Catherine spends her free time botanizing regional natural areas, and sometimes seed-bombing public green spaces that are in need of a little plant help. That is absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Catherine. Now, every time I'm on one of my runs through the parks and gardens of Boston, I'll see all the gorgeous flowers and plants and trees. I'll think of Catherine going through, skipping along and spreading plant seed like a Boston-based Mother Nature, and I'll smile. Which, if you've ever seen me run, you'll know is not an easy feat. Next, I have the pleasure of introducing you to the lovely Hannah Spinner. Hannah is lesbian, and she's a wicked awesome protein engineer. 
The field of protein engineering is all about modifying the structure and sequences of protein enzymes to achieve new and exciting results. Protein engineering goes hand in hand with the field of genome editing, which is an exciting new field in science that focuses on making specific changes to the DNA or cell of an organism. This process is done by making precise and specific cuts in a DNA sequence using enzymes called engineered nucleases. Editing DNA can lead to all different types of changes, some as simple as change in eye color, while others leading to huge changes, like eliminating genetic diseases. How freaking cool is this, guys? I can't believe that it was only the 1950s that we were able to first visualize DNA. And now, less than 100 years later, we're actually able to understand and alter the very same DNA. Absolutely wild. When it comes to the field of genome editing, Hannah describes her interests as love at first sight. In college, she started research with a graduate student at UC Berkeley, where they studied molecular engineering on CRISPR proteins and RNA. Now, if any of you guys are keeping up to date in biotech news, you've probably heard the term CRISPR before. I certainly had, but I didn't actually understand what it was or what it meant. All I knew was it was a big deal. So to try and sneak in a little bit of learning in today's episode, I'll tell you more about it. So CRISPR is actually an acronym, and it turns out it's actually shorthand for an even longer acronym, CRISPR-Cas9. So this full acronym stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats and CRISPR-Associated Protein 9. That's quite the mouthful. And it's not often you come across an acronym within an acronym. But ignoring the grammatical clusterfuck that is this acronym, what CRISPR actually is, is a new technology that provides a simple yet powerful tool for editing genomes. This technology was actually adapted from a naturally occurring defense mechanism used by bacteria cells. When a virus invades a bacteria cell, the bacteria captures part of the viral DNA and uses it to create DNA segments known as CRISPR arrays. These CRISPR arrays allow the bacteria to remember the virus invaded, so if the same or similar type of virus tries to attack again, the bacteria can use their CRISPR arrays to produce RNA segments that target the virus's DNA. The bacteria can then use the enzyme Cas9 to cut the DNA apart, which disables the virus. Genius, right? Scientists have been able to adapt this system for use in gene editing. Since the end result of the CRISPR-Cas9 system is cut up DNA, we can take advantage of that and add or delete fragments, essentially altering the organism's genome. There are a lot of really amazing potential uses for CRISPR technology, so it's no wonder Hannah's all about it. She was so interested in the research she performed in college that once she graduated, she started working at the company Scribe Therapeutics, which is a startup founded by the very same graduate student Hannah worked with on her college research. Although it's in the early stages, this company's goal is to have the most efficacious and widely used CRISPR system to treat people with genetic disease. And as if working for a startup isn't badass enough, Hannah is also pursuing her PhD at Harvard Medical School in biology and biomedical sciences. When it comes to the future, Hannah says, The world of STEM, CRISPR, and protein engineering is awesome, and I look forward to seeing more queer scientists in my field. Oh my god, absolutely, Hannah. Yes, the work you're doing sounds amazing, and we need more awesome people like you to be tackling these problems. Thank you, Hannah. You're an inspiration, not just to queer scientists, but to everyone, especially me. Just like Hannah and Evans, there are a lot of badass queer scientists who are working their way through graduate school. 
including the brainiac Lucas Carstensen. Lucas is gay, and he's a neuroscience PhD student at Boston University. When it comes to the human brain, scientists are for the most part still mystified as to how it actually works. Some might say that the field of neuroscience is the most mind-boggling type of research in the world. <laughs> mind-boggling? Get it? Why is no one laughing? So, while I'm over here making horrible puns about the brain, Lucas is making strides to actually understand it. His research is focused on examining how specific regions of the brain represent different aspects of our environment in different ways, specifically when it comes to spatial visualization. What does that mean, spatial visualization? Let's explain it by using a hands-on example, or I guess it'd be an eyes-on example. Take a look at where you are and the objects around you. Where are the objects that are in hand's reach? How far away is the TV from the door? Without looking, what objects are behind you now? All these questions require spatial visualization to answer, and the science behind how our brain does this is not very well understood. What we do know is that our brain looks at spatial visualization from different points of view. One is called an allocentric or world-centered view. This view, also known as a reference frame in neuroscience lingo, is the part of our brains that encodes information about the location of one object with respect to other objects. So how far is the TV from the door or the desk from the window? Another important reference frame is called an egocentric or self-centered view. This is the part of the brain that represents the location of objects relative to our own body axes. So knowing your phone is half a foot to the right of you, or your cat is on the floor to the left of you, or there's a dark looming figure standing behind you. <gasps> Just kidding, sorry. Scientists today know that both the allocentric and egocentric reference frames are super important when it comes to understanding our environment. But what they don't yet totally understand is how our brain uses each of these reference frames when it comes to movement or spatial navigation. Why is it that some of us are useless with a paper map, but can tell you exactly where the closest T-stop is from where they're standing? And why is it that I can't do either of those things? To answer all these questions and more, we have Lucas, who is studying how our brain uses these different reference frames to navigate the environment and how our brain encodes our views into memory. Lucas says, we all navigate the world in different ways, using different strategies and learning more efficient routes over time. As queer people, many variables make the world hard to navigate. As a step towards making the world easier to navigate for everyone, I study the neural correlates of spatial navigation and memory. I think we can all appreciate the struggle of finding our way through the world, and I'm so glad that Lucas is there to help us understand our way a little better and to give guidance to those who find themselves lost. Thank you, Lucas, for finding such an awesome and unique way to help people across the world. It's been amazing learning about how queer scientists are using their skills to help people, especially when it comes to Emma Snyder. Emma is lesbian, and she is a clinical research assistant and future genetic counselor. She's got a fantastically diverse educational background, having studied both biology and feminism, gender, and sexuality studies. Her background in these areas has led her to her current role, where she assists in clinical research on Turner syndrome and Klinefelter syndrome. These two conditions are both genetic disorders, which means they arise when a person is born with a non-standard number of chromosomes. Most people are born with 23 pairs of chromosomes, which define all of the person's physical characteristics. One pair of chromosomes has been deemed the sex chromosomes, as they determine a person's biological sex. 
both Turner and Klinefelter syndrome are both caused by a specific mutation within a person's sex chromosomes. But before I delve into the specifics of these genetic disorders, and since they both relate to the chromosomes responsible for a person's biological sex, I'd like to bring up a quick PSA about the difference between sex and gender. When we're talking about a person's sex and a person's gender, they mean two completely different things. A person's assigned sex is purely biological. It's based on whether you have two X chromosomes, which is assigned female, or an X and a Y chromosome, which is assigned male. These two chromosomes control what hormones are released, what reproductive system you have, and what sex organs you show. So your assigned sex is determined when the doctor or nurse takes a look at your junk when you're born and says, yep, that's a boy, or yep, that's a girl. However, a person's gender is far more complicated. Gender is based on a complex system of identities, expressions, and characteristics that society associates with a person's assigned sex. So, for example, ideas about how men and women are expected to behave, to dress, to look, and to communicate all contribute to gender. A person's gender identity is their internal experience and naming of their own gender. For some people, their gender identity matches their assigned sex, while others feel their gender aligns with the opposite assigned sex. And still, others feel they don't identify with either gender. Regardless of how you yourself identify, it's important to remind ourselves that a person's assigned sex and their gender identity may not be the same, and using those two words interchangeably can be insensitive. So, with our minds now educated and open, let's get back to learning about these syndromes. Turner syndrome occurs when a genetically female person is born with only one functioning X chromosome, rather than the normal two X chromosomes. This person will either have no second X chromosome, or a partially missing or abnormal second X chromosome. People who are born with Turner syndrome can have deficiencies in their height and sexual development, which can lead to problems with fertility. Klinefelter syndrome, on the other hand, occurs when a genetically male person is born with an extra X chromosome, rather than the usual 1X and 1Y chromosome. People who are born with Klinefelter syndrome can have a wide variety of symptoms, ranging from weak muscles, delayed puberty, smaller genitalia, enlarged breast tissue, and lower sperm count. By working on clinical research for both Turner and Klinefelter syndrome, Emma's position provides the opportunity to critically think about sex chromosomes, variations, and the notions of sex and gender. Her background in gender studies as well as her advocacy for the LGBTQ awareness has had a huge advantage in Emma's job, as many of her coworkers have a tendency to think primarily scientifically about the research that's being conducted. Working in a clinical setting made Emma aware of just how far we have to go to standardize and normalize LGBTQ care and research. Emma is currently pursuing a career in genetic counseling, as it offers the opportunity to think deeply about how LGBTQ folks can have their genetic health needs met more effectively. She says, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to build strong relationships with mentors in the sciences and begin to have more action-oriented conversations on the issues facing LGBTQ individuals in healthcare settings. You know, I've always believed that our healthcare system has a lot of room to improve, and I can appreciate how much more work is needed to have a system for health that's inclusive for everyone. Thank you, Emma, for making sure those conversations happen. We need passionate and outspoken people like you, part of the STEM community, if we're ever going to change our healthcare for the good. We should all feel lucky there are so many wicked smart people, part of both the LGBTQ and the STEM community, including the lovely Maria. Maria is bisexual, and she is an immunology laboratory technician working at MIT. 
Her research focuses on the field of immunoengineering, which involves using engineering therapies that target the immune system. This is a fascinating area of STEM, and there are so many different ways scientists can use immunoengineering to help patients. For Maria, this means studying how transplanting or replacing parts of the pancreas can affect the hormones secreted. The pancreas is a sadly underdiscussed organ of the body. Off the top of your head, can you name what the role of the pancreas is? Me neither. Can you point to where the pancreas is in your body? And don't just say, on the inside, alright? I'm the only one who's allowed to make terrible jokes here. The pancreas is a 6-10 to 10 inch long organ located behind the stomach, and it has two main functions. An exocrine function that helps in digestion, and an endocrine function that regulates blood sugar. Maria's work focuses on the endocrine component of the pancreas, which consists of a cluster of cells called islet cells. These cells are responsible for creating and releasing hormones into the bloodstream. The two main pancreatic hormones are insulin, which helps to lower blood sugar, and glucagon, which helps to raise blood sugar. Okay, great. The pancreas monitors our blood sugar. What on earth does this have to do with our immune system? I thought the immune system was all about fighting off bacteria and viruses that invade our body. Or, in my immune system's case, overreacting to literally any type of pollen. Yay, seasonal allergies! Well, it's true, the immune system is responsible for protecting the body from harmful substances. But sometimes your immune system can malfunction, and instead of attacking foreign objects like bacteria or viruses, the immune system mistakenly starts attacking the own body. This type of condition is known as an autoimmune disease, and it can obviously have some really serious effects on the body. There are many different types of autoimmune diseases recorded, including one that I had no idea was an autoimmune disease, which is type 1 diabetes. So how does it work? Well, for people with type 1 diabetes, the body's immune system will attack specific types of cells in the pancreas called beta cells. These cells are part of the pancreas' endocrine system, and they're responsible for making and releasing the hormone insulin. Without insulin to remove excess sugar from the bloodstream, a person can develop hyperglycemia, which can result in blurred vision, headaches, and, if left untreated, could cause the person to fall into a diabetic coma. On the other hand, for those patients who use external insulin to control their blood sugar, they run the risk of putting too much insulin in their body, which can result in too low levels of blood sugar, which is called hypoglycemia. The most severe symptoms can include loss of consciousness, seizures, and even death. Moral of the story? Bad things happen when your blood sugar isn't maintained. And it ain't easy keeping your blood sugar levels optimum if you don't have a working pancreas. Right now, the standard treatment for type 1 diabetes is careful monitoring of blood sugar and frequent insulin injections. However, a pancreas transplant, so surgically implanting a healthy pancreas into a person with diabetes, is a possible cure for diabetes. Of course, though, transplanting organs isn't a walk in the park. Most patients tolerate transplant organs for only 10 to 15 years before that organ stops functioning and they need to get another one. This can be especially difficult for young patients who need organ transplants, as they'll end up needing multiple surgeries throughout their lives, and their health continues to deteriorate while they wait on the organ transplant list for a new one. Although organ transplants can definitely save lives, it's not very sustainable and can use some serious help to have the whole process improved. That's where Maria hopes to help. Her long-term goal is to get an MD and PhD and continue to work on transplant immunology. 
She hopes to use her graduate and medical degrees to find ways to use local immune action to help increase the success of transplants and make life better for the recipient. Even though Maria is a total badass for going after not one, but two graduate degrees, it can be really tough going for a career in STEM. And Maria recognizes that. She says, It's really important to understand you have lots of skills and you are valued. You need to stand up for yourself. Be assured in your skills and let that guide you. Maria, I definitely agree. I can tell you for a fact that there are only two types of people in the world. People who felt insecure about themselves and dirty motherfucking liars. I'm serious. There's not a single person who hasn't ever once felt like they aren't good enough or that they should be doing better or doing something more or be someone different. I want every single one of them to listen to Maria. You are doing an amazing job. Thank you, Maria. I wish everyone in the world had a friend like you. I think that we all need your type of love and your support. So everyone, holla at Maria to be your friend. There are so many wonderful people in the LGBTQ community that I would love to be friends with, like literally everyone I've talked about so far, and another being the amazing Trey Artis. Trey is pansexual, and he's a biological and biomedical science PhD candidate. Trey is using his incredible talent to create epigenetic-targeted therapies for human diseases. Ah, yes, epigenetics. Of course. I know that one. It's the study of genetics that are epi? Hmm? You know, for hosting a podcast all about science, I really don't know that much about science. So, as usual, I looked it up. Epigenetics is the field of science that studies how environmental conditions and life experiences of families past generations can affect the genetic code of their offspring and descendants. I'm sorry, what? How the hell does that even work? So to understand that, we have to talk about the epigenome, another new vocab word we learned today. I hope you're all listening. There's a pop quiz at the end. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. I'm not cruel. Like some professors. Let's start with the term genome. This is your entire set of DNA. It's all the information needed to build and maintain the beautiful being that is you. But turns out the genome by itself isn't the full picture. There are a multitude of chemical compounds that attach itself to the genome. And these actually tell the genome what to do. The combination of those chemical compounds and the genome itself is our epigenome. So what do these chemical compounds do? Why are they so important? Well, imagine your genome as a library with approximately 20 to 25,000 books or genes. Each of these genes is a set of instructions for your body to do something. Make a protein, release a hormone, drunk text your ex at 2am, lots of things. Who knows? Maybe. Of course, your body doesn't need to use all these genes all the time. And in fact, your body doesn't. Our cells are able to regulate which genes are expressed, essentially turning some genes on and others off. This is what the chemical compounds in our epigenome are for. They can hop on or off specific genes to control their activity. And these modifications are known as an epigenetic change. There are all different types of epigenetic changes, and they'll be different across the body and between individual people. What's really interesting is that scientists have discovered that these epigenetic changes are sometimes passed on from cell to cell as they divide. Some changes are so persistent that they'll be passed down for generations. So things that you're doing right now could be causing epigenetic changes that will still be around when your grandkids are kicking. I mean, probably not much is changing from just listening to a podcast, 
But depending on what you eat, where you live, when you sleep, how you exercise, these are all things that will eventually cause chemical modifications to your genes. Of course, it's not always for the best. There can be errors in the epigenetic process, and there can be certain compounds missing from important genes, which means you might end up with abnormal gene activity or no activity at all. These malfunctions can cause genetic diseases like obesity, chromosome instabilities, and even cancer. One unfortunately well-known disease involved with epigenetics is leukemia. Leukemia is a cancer of the body's bone marrow, which is the source from where all your blood cells are made. One of the factors that scientists believe contribute to the root cause of this disease is an epigenetic malfunction in the DNA of our bone marrow cells. This mutation causes the blood cells that the bone marrow produces to keep growing and surviving way past its natural end. So normally your blood cells are made and they go about doing their thing, and after a while they get to a point where they're like, man, I'm too old for this shit, I'm a head out. And their DNA signals them to literally die. A tragic but necessary decision. Because to replace these old blood cells, the bone marrow has already made fresh new blood cells that are ready to kick ass. However, these abnormal blood cells don't get that oh-so-important death signal, so instead of piecing out when they're supposed to, they just keep going, and more and more of these mutated blood cells are surviving. Since the bone marrow keeps producing these cancer cells, the number of them in our blood system keeps going up and up, and eventually the cancerous cells will outnumber the healthy cells in the blood. This will lead to so many serious problems, like severe infections, trouble breathing, seizures, and in severe types of leukemia, even death. This is a heartbreaking disease that many of us have heard of, and I'm sure that many of you have had your lives affected by, in one way or another. But there is hope for everyone in the future, as many scientists are working on ways to treat or even cure leukemia, including our very own Trey. Trey first discovered the field of epigenetics when he was an undergrad, and he felt an instant connection to the field. Even though back then there wasn't a lot of knowledge about epigenetics, he could sense how much potential impact the field would have. And he was absolutely right, because in science today, work in epigenetics is critical for explaining, solving, and treating all different types of human diseases. Today, Trey is using his skills to study a range of different epigenetic regulatory proteins, and their role in contributing to leukemia. I'm so in awe of the awesome work that Trey is doing, and he's definitely worked hard to get where he is today. Trey is a first-generation, black and queer male from Queens, New York, where in his community, graduating from college, let alone pursuing a PhD, is definitely not the norm. He's had to face a lot of challenges in his life, and he definitely recognizes the difficulty of being openly queer in STEM. Because, as I'm sure many of you have noticed, science is still very much heteronormative. Trey says, I hope we can continue to work towards making science a more inclusive enterprise for the LGBTQ people, and I believe it starts with representation and sharing our stories. I am in full agreement with you, Trey. Representation is key when it comes to supporting any type of minority community, and by sharing your story, you've helped make it that much easier for others to feel like they belong. Thank you so much, Trey, for continuing to share your story and to empower others to do the same. And thank you to all the amazing queer scientists out there, not only the ones who share their stories today, but to those whose stories aren't shared, but are just as important. I hope that you guys enjoyed being able to hear about some of the awesome LGBTQ people who are involved in so many wonderful fields of STEM. It's fantastic to hear about all the mind-blowing research these scientists are working on. 
I loved getting the opportunity to chat with so many queer scientists for this podcast. I wish I could meet them all face-to-face and just gush over how awesome they are, and then awkwardly ask them to be my best friend. I love making connections with other scientists, but it's especially nice when you connect with people who've gone through the same challenges as you. And that's especially true when you're queer in STEM. So, to help those of you who are listening that feel isolated and want those connections, I've gathered a list of some of the awesome organizations that exist to connect and support LGBTQ people in STEM. First up, we have the organization called Queer in STEM, which is a platform used to support gender minorities and help their members build confidence, become comfortable with their personality, and help them find their dream jobs without discrimination. Another awesome organization is called OSTEM, or Out in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. This is a professional association for LGBTQ people in the STEM community, focused on empowering their members to succeed personally, academically, and professionally by cultivating environments and communities that are safe and celebrate diversity. This organization has almost 90 student chapters at colleges and universities, as well as professional chapters in cities across the United States and abroad. The next organization, Pride in STEM, has probably the best slogan ever, as their aim is to, quote, queer up science spaces and science of queer spaces. And if that shit's not on a t-shirt yet, they need to hire a new marketing team, because that is gold. Pride in STEM is a fantastic organization that works to raise the profile of LGBTQ people in STEM, as well as to highlight the struggles their members often face. Finally, we have the National Organization of Gay and Lesbian Scientists and Technical Professionals, which is a professional society that educates and advocates for LGBTQ students and professionals in STEM. By providing professional developments, networking, and peer support, this organization hopes to empower their members, as well as to educate all communities about the scientific, technological, and medical concerns of LGBTQ people. How awesome is it that there are these wonderful communities out there supporting queer scientists in so many different ways? If you're a queer scientist, I definitely suggest checking out any of the organizations listed to find local networking groups, assistance with job search, scholarships for funding our classes, or even to just see what other awesome queer scientists are out there. Having a community of peers who understand the challenges you face, as well as providing a safe space for you to be yourself, can be a huge support when you're working towards a degree or a career in STEM. Now, I'm sure there are many of you who are listening who are not part of the LGBTQ community, but don't just tune out because there's lots that you can do to support the amazing queer scientists working to make the world a better place. The first thing you can do is, if you have the resources, donate. All the wonderful organizations I listed are all accept donations that are used to keep these fantastic groups running. I understand, and I'll be the first to admit, not all of us have the financial freedom to donate, but you can still help. Commit yourself to being an ally to the LGBTQ plus community. An ally is someone who acknowledges that the queer community faces discrimination and are socially disadvantaged and an ally aims to use their position and privilege to counter this discrimination. What privilege am I talking about? I'm talking about the privilege that heterosexual and cisgender individuals have, as those are the people who make up the majority of the STEM community. So how can you be an ally? What things can you do every day that cost absolutely zero dollars, which helps support the LGBTQ community? The first is being a listener and being open-minded. If someone in the queer community tells you about discrimination they've faced or a challenge they're going through, 
Listen to them. Just being heard can be a blessing for someone who's struggling. Next, get rid of the assumption that all of your friends and coworkers are straight or cisgender. Because, spoiler alert, they're definitely all not. Don't assume because somebody has long hair and wears pink that they identify as female. And don't assume because somebody's a guy that they'll have a girlfriend or a wife. Imagine constantly having to hear the question, so, do you have a boyfriend? And having to explain over and over and over again, actually, I have a girlfriend. Or, actually, my partner is non-binary, so we don't use the word girlfriend. Or, actually, I have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Who wants to have to explain their relationship to every person they meet? That's exhausting. One way that you can help to avoid these scenarios is by using gender-neutral labels. Not just when asking your coworkers about their lives, but also when talking about your own life. If you only ever hear the terms, my wife, my husband, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, it can be nerve-wracking discussing your relationship using different terms. There are so many gender-neutral terms that you can use to describe your relationship. How about the word partner, significant other, spouse, your better half, your main squeeze, your side bay, your ride or die. There are so many awesome gender-neutral terms that you can use, and I'm sure it may seem strange at first saying your partner rather than your boyfriend, or your spouse rather than your husband. But after a few conversations, it'll feel like second nature, and you're helping everyone else in the conversation rely on those gender-neutral terms feel a lot more comfortable when they're talking about their relationships. Another way to help those who are not cisgender is to normalize the introduction of pronouns. For many people, when they introduce themselves, they say, Hi, I'm so-and-so. And when their coworkers refer to that person in the future, they use the standard pronouns, her or him. But not everyone uses those pronouns. And not everyone uses the pronoun that aligns with their assigned sex. So if you're a non-traditional person listening to your coworkers refer to you in a conversation, you either have to interrupt and explain that you don't go by that pronoun, or you have to sit quiet and be misgendered for the rest of your job. Neither seems like a great situation to me. We have to try and change the mindset of the STEM industry when it comes to assumed pronouns. And one simple thing that an ally can do is start introducing their pronouns when they speak. So if I introduce myself to somebody new, I can say, Hi, I'm Grace. My pronouns are she and her. It's nice to meet you. Even if you're not quite comfortable introducing yourself that way, you can still normalize the introduction of pronouns by including your pronouns on your business cards or adding it to the signature line of your emails, including it on your company or lab's employee profile, or even adding your pronouns to your Zoom screen name. By volunteering information about your pronouns, it shows that you're aware of the use of other pronouns, and it could help someone who uses a different pronoun feel way more comfortable speaking up about their identity. Using gender-neutral labels, introducing your name as well as your pronouns, and not making assumptions about people's gender identity are all easy and actionable steps for an ally. But being inclusive is only one part. Standing up against those who are not inclusive is another, more challenging part. I'm positive every single one of us has heard at least one anti-LGBT comment or joke throughout their studies or career. So I challenge you to be an active ally. The next time you hear a comment against the LGBTQ community, speak up against it. Call that person out. Say, hey, that's not okay to talk like that. It's offensive and I won't tolerate it. Now, you don't have to call out this person in front of a thousand people or shout out some pre-written speech at them through a megaphone. You can wait until the commenter is alone and have a private word with them. You can reach out later through an email if personal confrontation isn't your thing. It can be as little as saying, come on, 
that comment wasn't cool. Please don't do it again. As someone with hella anxiety when it comes to any type of confrontation, I'll be the first to admit that this step can be really hard. But imagine how much harder it is hearing demeaning jokes or comments about yourself and having everyone laugh along or say nothing to defend you. So don't be that person that awkwardly laughs at an uncomfortable comment. Be an ally and stand up to the aggressor in whatever way you can. It's not going to happen overnight, but I believe that by encouraging your peers to become an active ally and by representing and supporting queer scientists, we can cultivate a community in STEM that is open and safe for everyone, regardless of their race, their gender identity, or their sexual orientation. Thank you guys so much for listening to Boss Science's second ever soundbite episode. I hope you had as much fun as I did hearing about the awesome LGBTQ people working in STEM, and I hoped you learned a little something too. I want to give a huge thank you to all the queer scientists who agreed to be featured on this show. Evans Ralsted, Catherine Brainerd, Hannah Spinner, Maria, Trey Artis, Emma Snyder, and Lucas Karstensen. Many of these scientists had never met me before, and yet immediately volunteered to participate in today's episode because of their interest in promoting visibility of the queer community in STEM. They didn't know me, they didn't know what I was going to say, but they agreed to share their stories with me anyway, and together we made an awesome episode that I hope inspires everyone who listened. If you'd like to reach out to any of the awesome scientists featured on today's episode, you can find their contact info in the show notes. Check out the show's Instagram, at BOS Science, to see pictures of many of the scientists featured on today's show. And make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter to hear all about upcoming guests and episode releases. You can contact me via email at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com to send me your listener questions for upcoming guests, suggest a scientist or lab I should interview next, or even just to say hi. I'm friendly, I promise. If you liked today's episode, please do me a huge favor and rate and review the show. Every single one helps so much more than you'd think. You can go to iTunes to leave your wonderful review, or if you're a weirdo who has an Android like me, you can find out where to rate and review by going to the website ratethispodcast.com slash science and follow the quick and simple instructions to give me all the stars and all the nice reviews. My last request before today's fun comes to an end, although reviews and rates are great, the best way to help grow the podcast is word of mouth. So, I challenge all of you listening, if you liked today's episode, reach out to your friends, your family, your coworkers, your dog sitter, your dentist, your roommate's Tinder date, whoever you think would enjoy my weird and wonderful antics, and recommend the show. They can find the show at the website bosscience.podbean.com or on the platforms iTunes, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Stitcher. I'm going to thank you all in advance for the glowing reviews and dozens of people you recommend the show to. And if that's not the case, don't worry. I'll probably recover from the sadness one day. Well, I think that about covers it. I'll leave you guys to enjoy the rest of your day. See you all in the next episode of Boss Science, where I talk to wicked smart people about some boss-ass science. Bye! Thank you.